There's a number of announcements. Many of them are covered by bulletin inserts. Uh, I'll just run through them quickly for your benefit. Uh, first of all is that uh, Pastor Demi, as I think I've, you all should know by now, is on vacation this week. Uh, in his absence, we have Ed Roser, and he's over here, and you'll hear more from him in a minute. But Ed is the Minister of Education and Children, uh, no, Youth, Minister of Youth, and he brought one of his youth with him, and so welcome, Josh. You'll hear from Ed Roser in a few minutes, but uh, someone has said he looks like Pastor Demi's twin brother, so you may see some similarities, so stand by for that. Um, so he's a member of First Baptist Church in uh, Sudbury, Mass., and came up here just to be with us today, so welcome, Ed, and and we'll hear from you soon. Um, Easter is approaching, and there's a lot of special things that happen at that time of the year. In fact, there's a special Sunday school program for children that's being pulled together, and that's discussed in this bulletin insert that you have in front of you. There's also a church-wide social being anticipated on April 4th. I say being anticipated. The plan is to do it outdoors. The plan is it to be a church-wide family celebration, and we're anticipating some relaxation of social media or social guidelines for the protocol for COVID. Uh, already you're seeing masks being relaxed. We don't know if they're going to relax the space requirements, but one way or the other, if the weather is appropriate, we'll have an Easter celebration outdoors. Uh, this is also the time we promote what's known as the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. There's an insert in your bulletin that's an envelope that looks like this. Uh, many of you may not be aware why we do this or who Annie Armstrong is, but I'll just mention that Annie Armstrong was, a, was born in Baltimore a few years back. It was actually in 1850, and she had a heart for the Lord and also a heart for organizing women to meet the needs of disadvantaged peoples. And so she looked right around her own neighborhood and saw there were great needs. And so her heart for missions was not necessarily to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but just to look in her backyard, and she did that. And she organized a number of missions organizations. Uh, she also was a church planter. Uh, there's a former member of our church uh, that actually left here to go to South Carolina and eventually became the executive director of what Annie Armstrong started, which was the Women's Missionary Union. And so we have a close tie between us and the WMU, as it's called, which is the sponsor for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. So again, she was an advocate for Native Americans, she was an advocate for black women, for immigrants, for impoverished people, and, and a great woman of the Lord. And in 1934, the Southern Baptist Convention named this annual appeal after Annie Armstrong. You're going to see a video later on that will give you a little insight into the ministry that she started. But it's recognizing home missionaries as opposed to foreign missionaries. We'll have additional videos during the month to highlight individuals, some of them right here in our backyard, that are involved in home mission efforts. So this worship uh, through our offering will extend uh, through April 4th, so you don't have to donate today. But we do ask that you 
consider giving. We have a church goal of $2,021. And so we'll hopefully attain that. All right. Let's do our call to worship at this time. We'll segue into uh, our, our singing. But let me read to you from Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. And then we'll have a short prayer. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he answered a question that wasn't asked. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And as we know, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are challenged to be obedient to your teachings. Loving you as Lord sits very high on your list of commandments. Forgive us when we fall short of your expectations. May your love invade our souls now as we sing to you this morning. As the psalmist said, incline your ear to our voices as we focus on the journey to the cross during this special time of the year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, church, I invite you guys to stand up and worship this morning. Praise uh, God. Worship him. Let's sing together. Up to the hill. Up to the hill of Calvary, my Savior went courageously. And there he bled and died for me. Hallelujah for the cross. And on and on that day, the world was changed. A final perfect lamb was slain. Let earth and heaven now proclaim hallelujah for the cross. And hallelujah for the war he fought. Love has won, death has lost. And hallelujah for the souls he fought. Hallelujah for the cross. What good I've done. What good I've done could never save my debt too great for deeds to pay. But God, my Savior, made a way. Hallelujah for the cross. A slave, a slave to sin. My life was bound, but all my chains fell to the ground. Yes, Lord, when Jesus' blood came flowing down. Hallelujah for the crawlers sing hallelujah hallelujah for the war he fought love has won death has lost and hallelujah for the souls he fought hallelujah for the crawl 
And when I breathe my final breath, I'll have no need to fear that rest. This hope will guide me into death. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the war he fought. Love has won. Death has lost. Praise God. Hallelujah for the souls he fought. Hallelujah for the cross. Sing it again. Hallelujah for the war he fought. Love has won. Death has lost. Hallelujah for the souls he fought. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the cross. Yes, Lord, we praise you, Father. Worship him, sing Savior. Savior, I come, quiet my soul. Remember Redemption's hill where your blood was spilled for my ransom. Everything I once held dear, I count it all as loss. And lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you.
together. See you. 
They are North American missionaries. It's always been hard doing what they do, but it's not always been like this past year. When the world shut down, the easy thing for them would have been to wait, hold off, or to stop. But that didn't happen, and it never will. Because for your North American missionaries, the mission always moves forward. We're still sharing the gospel. We're still impacting lives. We're still here. We never stopped. Right now, your North American missionaries are adapting. They're innovating. They're coming up with new ways to take the gospel into places it's never been before. You can do that when you have tens of thousands of people like you who give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Ministry costs money, and so your giving enables us to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. You see, no matter what's happening around us, when the world says stop, God always says go. That's why we're seeing new churches planted. We're seeing needs met, and we're seeing believers baptized. It's what happens when God's people give, pray, and go. Thank you for praying for your missionaries because prayer is powerful. And thank you for giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As you do that, you provide the fuel that moves the mission forward. There's so much work to be done. Now, more than ever. It's estimated that there are 275 million lost people in North America. And so, what happens next in this story is up to you.
Let us pray. I'm going to be praying from our church's prayer booklet. If you haven't picked one up, they're in the back of the sanctuary. And I'll also be praying, recognizing the people we just saw in the video. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we want to pray right now for those that have made the ultimate sacrifice of sharing the good news of Jesus with a broken and imperfect world. And they're sharing the, the Son of Man, which is more than just a rumor that we talked about. It is a reality. And so that I lift up right now Victor and Ludmilla, who uh, made the journey from Brazil to Boston to start a church there. And so, Lord, bless their ministry. May they reach and touch lives in a very real and personal way. And may you use them for your glory. And so Lord, as other missionaries in New England and around the world, around the United States, uh, share the good news of Jesus. May there be an overwhelming response. And may we, as a church here in Portsmouth, be a partner with them in, in growing God's kingdom. Lord, I pray for individuals within our own church. Pray for the Labonte family as Jared and Bernard bring up their young daughter in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, may that be a, a, a great journey for them together as husband and wife and, and now a major addition to the family. I pray also for the Mackerman family, for Gerald and Linda and the boys. Uh, as Gerald attempts to be the, the father of young men who are trying to make their way in this world, a couple already in the military and a couple trying to figure out what to do with their life. And may Gerald through the, and Linda, through the power of the Holy Spirit, influence their destiny as well. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you've provided healing to Shirley and to Dawn and Lloyd and, and others who have gone through some medical roller coaster ride here in the last year or so. Lord, restore their mobility to them. May they have a sense of your presence as that occurs. We pray for Ademi right now as he and his family are on vacation in Florida. Maybe a time of refreshment, but also a time of sharing with their family uh, things that are going on in their lives. We pray for our church as we try to be a lighthouse here on the seacoast that draws people to you where we can share the truth about Christ, who he is and why he came to this earth and how he can make a difference in your life. Pray for our nation as our government attempts to chart a course for the future. And Lord, may they do so not being totally ignorant of the word of God, but work for peace, but in a proper way. Work for inclusion, but in a proper way. Lord, may we never lose sight of the word of God. So I pray right now for Ed as he makes his journey from the front row to the podium. Lord, may his words ring in our hearts in such a way you can say, yes, Lord, I've, I've heard a new thought and my heart has been influenced. So Lord, let's just have a time of meditation on the word 
we ask this in the precious name of Jesus who made that journey to the cross that we just sang about. Lord, bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, it is a, a joy uh, to be with you all this morning. Uh, uh, my name, again, is Edgardo Rosa. I serve as the Christian Minister of Education and Missions, and I do youth ministry as well in my church. Um, uh, we, I'm, I serve at F- FBC, First Baptist Church of Sudbury, and this is where I met Ademi. Uh, I actually had heard of Ademi even before meeting him. Uh, when I got to the church, our pastor was like, hey, are you related to the Mirabals? And I was like, the Mirabals? Who, who are these people? They're like, you look just like one of them. And I was like, who? He's like, Victor. And I was like, no, no Victor. Ademi? No, no Ademi. He's like, okay, okay, okay. So I had heard of them before I even met them. And then as I continued serving in the church, Ademi came back from seminary. And we served one summer as summer interns together. And then from there, he, w- he went to Nets. And then from Nets, the Lord has brought him here. So it's been a fun ride. It's been good to see him grow, his family grow from Elena to Kendallin to the process that they're in right now. Um, and then to here, to be with you all this morning and to, to preach where he, the Lord, has brought him. Uh, so uh, uh, setting that aside, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the privilege of preaching the word and having me here this morning. Uh, so to, this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So I, I would uh, if you have a Bible, make your way there. But, but before we even read the passage, uh, I want to ask you, do you have a favorite memory? Do you have a favorite memory? Maybe, maybe it's uh, the day of your wedding or your child's birth or a promotion. Uh, maybe it's the day you signed on the, on the dotted line and you bought your house or your condo or your apartment. You had, is there a memory that, that you can recall that was such a great memory that you knew who was there? Sometimes you, like, you can remember the smell. Maybe it was a date that you were in. Uh, or, or, I don't see a lot of kids, but maybe there were some kids here. Maybe you can go back to your childhood that day that you got the, your PlayStation or your Xbox or the train track set. Like, best day ever. I want to plant this in your mind because this is what the Apostle Paul is going to ask us to do today. He's going to ask us to remember. To remember three things this morning. The first thing, to remember the hostility of sin. The second thing, to remember our blood-bought peace. And then lastly, to remember that in the Spirit, we are a new man. So the hostility of sin the blood-bought peace, and then the spirit-wrought new man. So with this in mind, let us jump into our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Starting in verse 11, we read, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So the first thing that we see is we are called to remember the hostility of sin. Paul reminds the Ephesian church that as uncircumcised Gentiles, there was a wall, a dividing wall of hostility that separated the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcised from the uncircumcised. And for Paul, this separation is important because he recognizes that those who are outside of the covenant community, they ultimately stand without hope and without God. So, so let's just briefly talk about circumcision. I'm sure it's not a conversation we have all the time. And when you guys go out to lunch today, or you're, you're not having a conversation, I'm sure, about circumcision. It's a weird word. Uh, I, I remember my daughter was four, and we were reading her. We were going through the Bible, and we get to circumcision. And she says, Dad, what does this mean? And I say, we're going to get back to that. Right? Like we do, like it's, and, and, and through time, we make sure what it means. But for here, for our context, we need to know what it stands for. And circumcision was the sign of the covenant. When Abraham, when God promises to Abraham his covenant, he says this in Genesis 17, 11. God tells Moses, uh, Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. So circumcision stood as the sign for thousands of years as the distinguishing mark between God's people and the Gentiles, God's people and the enemies, God's people and those who were alienated and hostile. To be uncircumcised was to be an enemy, was to, was to understand that you were not of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, this is what, when David approaches the, the battle line, when he encounters Goliath, this is what he says. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Hostility. Later on in 1 Samuel, when Saul's about to die, he's losing the war. This is what he tells his armor bearer. Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul would rather die at his own hand than to die at the hands of the uncircumcised. They were the enemies. There was hostility between them. So Paul sets the stage, right? Remember that you and the Gentiles and the Jews, you guys were separated, enemies to one another. But then he goes on further. He presses this truth, and he says that those who are uncircumcised are aliens and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. Now, depending on your Bible translation, sometimes that word commonwealth of Israel can be translated as citizens or citizenship. Now, we can sort of think about what that means for us today. If you are not a citizen of a country, you don't get the privileges or the rights that a citizen gets. This is why so many people try to to enter into America, because there are great privileges and great rights that they get that they they don't merit or they don't get in other countries. So Paul explains what these rights and privileges are. And he says in verse 12 that these rights and privileges are the covenant of promise. The covenant of promise. They are the the uncircumcised, the Gentiles don't participate 
Don't inherit these covenants. Now, I teach the youth, and we, we want to teach big truths. And we don't ever want to dumb them down, but we always want to present them in such a way that they're able to take them on, understand them, live them out, apply them. So when we talk about the covenants, when, when we try to teach the youth about the Old Testament covenants, there's at least three that we need to plant our flags in, right? That we need to remember, that we need to keep in our minds. And the first one being the Abrahamic covenant. And, and I try to teach the youth that the Abrahamic covenant has to do with a people and land. So if you can remember the Abrahamic covenant, people and land. L- listen to what we're told in Genesis 17. God promises Abraham, I will make you a father of a multitude of nations, people. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. People, land. And the second covenant that we have to remember is the Mosaic covenant. So if the Abrahamic covenant is about people and land, the Mosaic covenant is about God's presence, choosing to dwell among his people. In Exodus 19, we read, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I I don't know what comes to mind when you think about priest. Maybe the first thing that you think about is the high priest, the, the, the one priest that could enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and go into the presence of God. Maybe you think about the Levites as a clan, as all of them as priests who worked the temple and kept the temple going. But I wonder if you ever think about Exodus 19 in this way, that the whole nation is called to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. And the point being is that The nation was in charge to do what they needed to do. This is why all the laws are instituted, so God could dwell among his people. He wanted to be there. And when things were unholy or common, as we see in the book of Ezekiel, God's presence would take and go away from them. The Mosaic Covenant promised that God would dwell with them. So Abraham, land, people, Moses, presence, the last one, the Davidic Covenant. Promises a king. So, Second Samuel chapter seven. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, a king is promised who will reign, who will sit on his throne forever. Now, why do I mention these covenants of people, land, presence, king? Because if you were not a faithful Jew, you stood outside of these promises. You did not inherit them. You were, a, you were an alien. I was an alien. I was a stranger to them. So one can easily understand why Paul would conclude they are without hope. There is no hope for them if they are outside of God's covenant promises. There's no eternal hope. There's no hope that would last forever. Now, 
This isn't an arbitrary promise. When taken together, these four promises of land, people, king, presence actually calls people back to the garden. Where people, where Adam and Eve were called to be fruitful and multiply. Have a people. Where Adam and Eve are called to be in the garden and take care of it, a land. Where Adam and Eve are called to submit themselves under God, but to also have dominion over the earth. They were vice regents. We see leadership. And where God dwelt. Where he walked among them. The promises made in the Old Testament are, are harking back to the, what people were created for. To be a nation, to be a people group under God who lived together in his presence. And if you don't have those promises, you are without hope. A stranger, an alien to the covenants of promise. So, hostile, strangers to the covenant. And then Paul continues. He says the hostility, that is bet- the hostility is not only between the Jew and the Gentile, but also the hostility actually stands between God and humanity. And, and this, is, this is where you're like, wait, wait, but isn't, didn't just God pick a people? Didn't he make promises to this people group? Like, what do you mean God has hostility towards humanity? And this is where it's helpful to just keep on, to, to keep on reading, right? So we, in verse 16, follow along with me. He says, and might reconcile us both to God. So both Jew and Gentile need reconciliation. Jumping down a couple of verses in verse 18, for through him we both have access. So who needed reconciliation? Both. Both Jew and Gentile needed reconciliation because the Jews had turned the promises, the Jews had turned the sign of the promises into works. This is why Paul later in in Romans would write, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Like, I, I hope that falls on us with so much weight. What Paul is trying to say is that those who are strangers and aliens, who are uncircumcised, were, were aliens and strangers, and there was hostility and a wall there that divided them. For the Jews, if they didn't do it by faith, their circumcision became as uncircumcision. They were as if those who did not have the promises. Paul goes on, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. I I, I was driving up with Josh this morning, and and, and, and I was like, hey, let's just, let's walk through Ephesians. And let's just, what do we see? What do we glean? Let's ask the Lord. And we get to this, and, I, and, and I've used this illustration before, but if you're married, um, most of us wear a wedding ring. Uh, I, I've been married to Jocelyn, who right now, uh, I have my phone on. She is, she is due any moment right now. I told her, I was like, hey, you got to wait for me today. 
because you can't go right now. I won't be there in time. But we've been married eight years. We've been together for, oh, it's going to be 17 years. Now this ring signifies a promise, a covenant. I promised her that I would be faithful to her. I promised her that I would try to love her as Christ loved the church as best as I can by grace. I promised her that I would serve her. But every summer, we, we go to our friend's lake house, and I try to get a little bit better at wakeboarding. A little bit better every summer. And every summer, I tell myself after like the third run, it's not going to get better. But I take off my wedding ring because I don't want to lose it, because actually, this is my second wedding ring. I lost the first one already. So I don't want to lose the second one. It's a bad call if i got to buy a third one. But the ring signifies the covenant and the promise. But when I take off my ring, are the promises annulled? Are they gone? And we would all say, no, of course not. Because what seals, what entered us into the promise was not the ring, but love. And this is how the sign of circumcision was supposed to work. The sign of circumcision was not what sealed, it was not what inherit or gave you the promises, it was actually faith. Going back to Romans, look what Paul teaches. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So now we start seeing the picture that the hostility that God has between between him and all humanity is because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The uncircumcised as sinful people who are not part of God's covenant and the people who are supposed to be part of God's covenant have turned the promises into works. All have fallen short. All stand separated from God. If we can learn something here from this point is that sin... Sin is always personal. Sin always has this effect that is horizontal. It impacts our relationship with one another, with our neighbors, as we see between Jew and Gentile, and it's always vertical. It impacts our relationship with God. We can never just sweep sin away. It has ramifications that are deep and meaningful, and it reaches our neighbors, and it reaches our relationship with God. It, and we have to understand this hostility that's caused by sin so that we can understand the gospel message, the good news of the blood of Christ. We sang so many songs today of the blood, and we'll continue because it's important, because it's valuable, because if without it, we are separated from one another and from God. We would be without hope and without God. So remember, right? We're called to remember the hostility of sin. And the second thing that we're called to remember is the blood-bought peace. So uh, turn with me again to so verse 13 through 18. 
but now. Don't you, don't you love when Paul, but now? The, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. After 25 years plus, uh, the Berlin Wall began to fall in November of 1989. Uh, if we were to, to go to uh, uh, this one section of the wall in graffiti, there's this quote. It says, Forget not the tyranny of this wall, nor the love of freedom that made it fall. Forget not the tyranny of this wall, nor the love that made it fall. Isn't this what Paul is reminding us this morning? Don't forget the sin. Don't forget the hostility that was between you and your neighbor. Don't forget the hostility that's between you and God, nor forget the love that it took to break it down. By Christ's blood, the wall of hostility falls. Verse 14 says, he himself is our peace. He made us one. And how did he make us one? How did he break down this wall? In his flesh. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul explains that Christ accomplished this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And the ordinance here is the, is the sign of, the, of circumcision. Christ himself will now become the sign of all of God's covenant people. And we see this contrast, right? So if we follow it, verse 11 and verse 12 talks about the flesh, the flesh that brings circumcision, and then, the, and then he contrasts it by the flesh, by the body of Christ. Two signs, one that was merely outward and one that is blood-bought by his body. And this is exactly what our Savior taught on the night that he was betrayed. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Paul exhorts us to remember that it was only through the cross, through the death of Christ, that both Jew and Gentile can be participants of this new covenant. But remember, the hostility isn't just between the horizontal relationships. The hostility stands also between God and man. In verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Uh, it's not on my notes right here, but I love that phrase, 
killing the hostility. Paul, in, in Corinthians, would write the death of death. Here is the death of hostility. He kills it, makes away with it. A New Testament scholar, John Murray, writes about reconciliation. He says, reconciliation places in the focus of attention our alienation from God and the divine method of of restoring us to his favor. And then he goes on to write, reconciliation presupposes disrupted relationship between God and men. It implies enmity and alienation. This alienation is twofold. Our alienation from God and God's alienation from us. The cause of the alienation is, of course, our sin. But the alienation consists not only in in our unholy enmity against God, but also God's unholy alienation from us. In our sin, God stands against us. And that that might sound scary. It might sound maybe even foreign to us. But we have to understand the weight of hostility. We have to understand the weight of the enmity between a holy and just God and a wretched sinner. Let me me give you three passages to, to see if it sinks in us. The hostility that God has towards sinners outside of Christ. We read in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So he hates evil. But then it goes on, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Or Psalm 7, verses 12 through 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And lastly, Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I'm sure we've heard the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the, the sin. And, and I can understand the, 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 the desire to want to love our neighbor. We're called to do that. But we also have to have a biblical balance where we understand that in Psalms, we see God hates all evildoers. He wets his sword. He readies his bow. God, because of our sin, stands against us, ready to pour out his judgment. But again, it's not only God's enmity towards us, it's our enmity towards God as well. Romans 5 says that we are enemies of God. Colossians 1 says that we have a hostile mind against God. Man in his depravity seeks to do what is Right in his own eyes, he seeks to dethrone God and place himself in the place of God. We are the greatest traitors, committing the highest treason against God's reign. God is, stands with hostility towards us, 
and us towards God. Church, we have to. We have to let this sink in deep. We have to think and contemplate and read through Scripture and pray about what does it mean to be a sinner? What does it mean to know and love and understand a holy God who can have no evil in His presence? We must understand the depths of our alienation, our separation and hostility so that we can truly understand the depth of the peace and reconciliation that is accomplished in the death of Christ. This is why we can say we have a great Savior. Because Jesus, in a war where two enemies are going at it, Jesus stood in between. Jesus by giving his body, by shedding the blood, brings peace. He is our peacemaker. One can, un- like, one can understand as we hear, oh, Jesus is our peacemaker. Why on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he would say, be peacemakers. Reflect me. I brought peace. He stands in the peace, he stands in the way of God's judgment. God's wrath needed to be appeased, and he absorbs it. He takes it on. He who knew no sin became sin. It was made sin, and he became a curse for us. See, see God didn't just take the enmity and just say, hey, I'm just going to cast it aside. No, God killed it in the body of Christ. God brought peace. Peace between sinners and a holy God. Peace between sinners and sinners so that we are one man. Peace. So we remember. We remember the hostility of sin. We remember the high cost of peace. And then lastly, we are called to remember the spirit-wrought new man. We turn, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I I, I smile because this is good news. (laughs) This is good news for us. It was good news for the Ephesians. Uh, We're going through this book in our our church right now. And, And if we were to walk through this, all of this good news is to remind the church for the sake and the praise of God's name. This is good news. So the imagery that Paul gives us is peace between Jew and Gentile is found in this new man. No longer two, no longer divided, but now a new man. 
The wall of hostility has been broken down. I, uh, I read one time an article, I, I, don't, I don't know where I read it, but uh, the, the author was talking about gangs. And, and he was saying how gangs have such a tight relationship. It's a messed up relationship, but they have a tight relationship. Once you're in there, you're, you, you guys are like brothers. You guys are literally willing to give your life for the other. And, and in talking about this, he talks about sort of the initiation into gangs. And some gangs, not all gangs, some gangs beat up the member as an initiation process to bring them into the fold. It is by the shedding of the blood that they get to partake and be part of the gang. We understand this concept. We, we say this, we say blood is thicker than water when we talk about family. We understand when we talk about the requirements of what unity needs, it's blood. So what greater blood is there than the blood of Christ who can unite circumcised and uncircumcised, the Jew and the Gentile? It is the blood of Christ that unites. So in Christ, we are one man, one body, no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but brothers and sisters. We weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We serve one another. We put the other's interest ahead of our own. We pray for each other. We share our resources, our talents, our skills for the mutual upbuilding of one another. No longer divided by circumcision, but united by the blood of Christ. This is why I can come from Massachusetts, stand here, and say, you are my brothers. Because it is not by outward circumstances, but by the blood that was shed that we are united. This is why a kid who grew up in Framingham and low-income housing can go and be a part and a member of a local church who's pretty affluent and feel at home. This is why we can divide walls between race and gender and political issues because the blood of Christ is thicker and better than any separation that the world can bring. So it unites us to one another as one man, one body, and it also unites us and makes us the temple of God's dwelling place. If you could, look again at verse 12. It says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God. That's a pretty bleak picture. Separated from Christ, no God. Yeah. Like, what you guys want to talk about, like, hey, what's going on with the world? Separated from Christ, no God. But here, by the blood of Christ, we have peace with God. We are made the temple of God where he dwells. The world does not have this. Only the covenant members in Christ 
have this. And I, and I say, and I, Paul, I think, I believe in my heart that Paul uses the word world here to hearken us back to what Jesus taught. In John chapter 14, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, asked Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? To which Jesus responded, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, Jesus and the father, will come to him and make our home with him. The world has no unity, no relationship with both Jesus and the Father. But as God's people under the sealed and enacted new covenant by the blood of Christ, we have become God's dwelling place. Like, (laughs) this is good news. To be, to go from having no God, no hope, to now God dwells in us. But not only does God dwell in us, we have access to him. We have access to him. Do you know what that means? That when we're going through cancer, we can turn to the Father because we have access by the blood of Christ. When we have marital problems, we can turn to the Father because we have access to the Father by the blood of Christ. When our kids are rebellious and they want none to do with Jesus or the church, we can turn to the Father because we have access by the blood of Christ. When sin is weighing us down, we can turn to the Father because we have access by the blood of Christ. I I, I work with a lot of youth. And I think one of the biggest things that they're struggling with is loneliness and depression, suicidal thoughts. The hope that I can give them is that in Christ, they can go to the Father because they have access by the blood of Christ. Hope is what they have. Hebrews tells us that we can approach his throne with all confidence because Christ has given himself and become our peace. So can anything separate you from the love of Christ? I say no. We have access to the Father. So church, may we never forget. We are called to always remember that we were once by sin hostile to one another and hostile to God. And at the cross, at the shedding of the blood of Christ, we now have peace with one another, made into one new man, one body, and and we have peace with God where he dwells with us. So I close by maybe asking, so what? So what? Sometimes... 
we, we are called to have an application to leave with something to do. I, I think the text gives it to us twice, clearly. Remember. That's the exhortation. To remember. I, I, don't, I don't know what you have to do. I don't know if you read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 every single morning so that you don't forget. I don't know if you write it on a sticky note and you put it on your mirror or you put it somewhere so that you don't forget. I don't care if you call, you call your friend and, hey, can you call me at 7 o'clock in the morning? Daylight savings, no matter what time it is, right? You call me and you don't let me forget. You remember. Remember the hostility that divided us and remember the blood that united us. And then lastly, we go and tell. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. One, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We have been given the message of reconciliation. God has entrusted us with this message. We have been made ambassadors where God is making an appeal through us. You, this morning, in Christ, by the blood of Christ, by faith, have been made an ambassador of this message of reconciliation. The world is without hope and without God, is the conclusion that Paul ends with. And you know how God works to Mend that through his people. Through the message of reconciliation to make an appeal to them through you who have remembered and go and tell. If we keep our mouths closed, people will be without hope and without God. Oh church, may we go out and tell the world about the peace of God by the blood of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, our sins are great. And our sins separate us. It, it, it creates a wall of hostility between us as horizontal relationships as we see through Jew and Gentile, but it also creates a wall of hostility. It creates enmity between us and you. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus became our peace. He shed his blood. He gave his body so that we would be reconciled to one another and to God.
making us one man and the dwelling place of God. Lord Jesus, let us leave rejoicing in this good news that those us, we sinners who had no hope and no God by you and in you, we have God and hope. Lord, may we sing today and rejoice today and may we tell others because if we do not, they will perish without hope and without God. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for becoming our peace. Holy Spirit, thank you for uniting us and making us one new man and the temple, the dwelling place of God. Father, may we understand the free access in Christ that we have to you. And may we go before your throne in our greatest needs and in our greatest joys and our greatest pains because we have access to you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in your name. come to a time of communion and I couldn't help but think as we were listening to the sermon how I couldn't have planned it better for that particular sermon to be given today because I think it emphasizes that which we are soon about to celebrate so here at Seacoast Community Church we practice open communion and we do not therefore you do not need to be a member here to participate in communion, but you do need to be a believer. At some point in your life, you've come to grips with the reality of Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior and followed up with baptism. Uh, if you are in that category, you are free to participate in communion. You're part of God's family, that reconciled family that Ed just talked about. But there is a caveat to what I just said, and it's expressed nicely in Paul's letter to the people at Corinth. And I'll share that with you. It's chapter 11, verse 27. And it says, therefore, I love that word, therefore. We'll come back to what precedes it later. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthy manner. I wonder what that means. <clears throat> if you're here and you're tempted to take communion, but if you are doing it in an unworthy manner, it, it's not a good thing. Unworthy. Try to think what that might mean, and so I'll ask you to think about that. But it has to be that you're doing it in an irreverent manner, perhaps, perhaps self-centered, Perhaps you're looking for a mid-morning snack. Those are all irreverent and, and unworthy. The verses go on to say after that, a man ought to examine himself, examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the wine. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Examine oneself. 
I would have to surmise that that is a test of the heart, the attitude of your heart. It's an awareness of the significance of the taking of a communion. This is a spiritual act. It's not a ritual. And with that, let me go to Matthew 26. I'll precede that by stating that Jesus was crucified and buried on a Friday. His last supper with his disciples was Thursday before he was arrested and tried in a travesty of justice. But consistent, by the way, with a higher plan, Matthew chapter 26 clearly indicates that Jesus was at the Passover meal. He ate that Passover meal with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. The timing is not insignificant. Hear the words written by an eyewitness who was at that Last Supper, a guy named Matthew. And he writes these words in Matthew 26, verse 17 through 19. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied as follows, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus directed and prepared the Passover. Skipping further along. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. In Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth, I'm going to use those words as we go through the communion. And Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I ask you to take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance for me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Matthew 26 concludes with this, these words. And when they had concluded, and when they had finished the communion, they sang a song. I wonder what they sang. They sang a hymn and departed for the Mount of Olives. So I think we ought to sing a song, too. Edwin, what do you think? Sing a song? I think that's a good idea. All right. Praise God. Let's let's stand up and worship. Amen. In light of uh, today's scriptures uh, in word and uh, and also in, in our time in communion together as a body. Because of blood.
you, Lord. We worship you, Father. Um, and in light of uh, your word today, in light of um, what was preached um, and what we've sung already, um, uh, I leave you with a benediction from uh, Hebrews 10. Um, it's verses 19 uh, through 25, and it, it's, it falls more on the assurance of our faith. In Christ, and says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed. With pure water. Now let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Praise God. Amen. Church, God bless you. You are dismissed.